1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litbeck, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Carrie Holt about her book, Reading These United States, Federal Literacy in the Early Republic, 1776 to 1830, published by the University of Georgia Press in 2019. Dr. Holt is Associate Professor of English and American Studies at Utah State University. Reading These United States explores how Americans read, saw, and understood the federal structure of the country in its early years. Drawing on a wide array of sources from almanacs to textbooks, magazines to novels, and much more, Dr. Holt illustrates how Americans imagined their country not necessarily as one homogeneous nation, but as a union of states. Forging national character through local differences, Holt's work sheds new light on the ways in which U.S. nationalism was created inversely by drawing lines between and separating Americans from themselves. Dr. Holt, welcome to the program.
0: Great to be here.
1: All right. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this project and why you chose to study it?
0: Sure. This all started in graduate school, where I was doing a bunch of sort of independent research projects on regional literature. I was really interested in regional literature in the early United States and how different regions were very um, intent on sort of defining themselves in these very unique terms. And all of this seemed to... mash up weirdly with all the things I was studying in my courses about um, trying to sort of create this unified nation and this unified community. And so I was always kind of struck by this odd tension between, well, how do you have all these sort of independent, you know, clearly defined and clearly differentiated regions at the same time that you're also having sort of print culture and national culture sort of trying to imagine this unified nation. So that was sort of my way into this topic, which then led me to think about the political structure of federalism.
1: And so for our listeners who are less familiar with this uh, time period and with the terminology, can you explain what federal means during this time period? Because I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, we kind of use in our contemporary time, federal and national kind of interchangeably when just thinking about, you know, the federal government. But during this time period, as you're pointing out, you know, it's quite different.
0: Yeah. So in this period, they really thought of federal as a very particular type of national government that was modeled on this idea of sort of a confederation where you have a nation that is defined by its constituent parts. And this was different. So when they um, are in the process of declaring independence from Great Britain, there was a lot of debate about, well, what's what kind of nation are we going to create and what kind of political structure is it going to have? And there was quite a bit of discussion and reading into political philosophy at the time of trying to figure out, well, what's going to be a workable model? Because they knew the colonies were all different. They'd long been sort of operating with sort of these independent local governments. And so trying to transform that into a unified nation with a single government was a big problem. So there had been these uh, theorizations about federalism uh, going back to um uh Montesquieu, uh, sort of the, the most well-known, um, where he said, OK, when we can think about a unified nation, you can imagine a unified nation that has these constituent components where you have these multiple parts that are brought together. So federal was really meant to delineate that particular kind of government, uh, which was different from just sort of having a singular national government that represented the whole. This was one that was about parts. And they also had, interestingly enough... Um, Some models within indigenous nations, the Iroquois Confederacy sort of used a federal model that uh, Ben Franklin in particular um, sort of drew on as this other model for sort of imagining a particular kind of national government that was comprised of these parts. So it was that part to whole um, sort of union of many that federal came to represent during this time.
1: Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people kind of forget that, you know. It's called the United States of America for, for a reason during this time period.
0: Yeah. And uh, they used that as a plural term pretty much up until about the Civil War. It was used primarily, particularly in Supreme Court cases, as a plural term. So it was that's why, you know, in the book title, it's these United States. It was often, you know, uh, the United States are because that idea of sort of a plural union was sort of there in the grammar. And it really wasn't until the late 19th century that thinking of the United States as a singular term um, came into play.
1: And so one of the things that you introduce readers to early on is how geography was used to not only kind of think about the United States in a federal way, but also to teach it in a federal way. And so how does this how does this happen during this time period and how is that kind of important for your study?
0: Yeah, and this is often where sort of these ideas of regional distinctions start is the colonies all had very different uh, geographies, different um, landscapes, different, you know, some had more rivers and some were more humid and some had mountains and some had, um, you know, very different boundaries, different sizes. Uh, so that idea of sort of the the topography uh, was very, very significant for how people were sort of defining themselves and developing an identity as part of the the British colonies, and when it came to defining the United States as a federal union, people often went back to geography and topography as a way to sort of develop a or help people visualize. I think what was different about all of these different uh, first colonies and then states, and geography books often became the place where people started to sort of outline, like here is you know here is how Georgia is different from Massachusetts, and. Um, Geography books often, they talk about topography and space, but they would often get into um, of social characteristics. Uh, then you'd see, you know, oh, in the South, you know, some uh, areas are... Um, they spend more time, you know, growing fruits and they have, you know, these types of characteristics that grow with um, sort of having this abundance of um, particular fruits to eat. And then, you know, there were some in New England where they say, well, you know, we're not able to grow as many of these things, but we spend more time, you know, developing these industries related to manufacturing and and trade. And that became a way for people to see written down uh, when you come to print culture in geography books was where those clear delineations uh, were made so that people were always understanding the United States as comprised of these very, very different components.
1: Yeah, when thinking about that myself, I always kind of think of the example of Dr. Alexander Hamilton, um, no relation to the famous one that's in the the musical, (laughs) um, kind of going on a kind of tour of the U S and having just these kind of vivid descriptions of individual States. And because I go to school in Maryland, I always remember him saying something to the effect of that Marylanders are always really proud of their roads, which is amazing considering how (laughs) horrible the roads are in this state. Um, And how do you just describe the kind of geography of an area and it's kind of characteristics to its people.
0: And this becomes interesting because you see all these very particular characteristics that are different and distinct. And so that in you, in reading these geography books, you think, okay, how are all these things that are so different? How are they all a part of the same thing? How do people sort of see this as a union that they belong to that's comprised of all these different parts? And a lot of the geography books, and then there were also geography games, sort of confront that contradiction um, directly. Um, Jedediah Moore spends a lot of time talking about, you know, you wouldn't think, this all seems so very disparate. Um, But he's the one who says, well, when you start to read about all of these differences, that helps you feel a connection to them. And that's where I sort of get into that argument about people had to learn how that reading and literacy was really crucial to helping people figure out how you take all these different components and imagine them as a whole.
1: And, you know, one of the things that you look at besides just kind of a print culture and kind of like reading material is also kind of images that we see during this time period. And so what are some of those images that you kind of look at in this in this um, study and what do they tell us?
0: I love the images. They were so much fun to look at because they're very straight. again, they're trying to represent a paradox, right? How you have something that is both singular and plural at the same time. So you see these innovative um, strategies uh, where you have um, the linked rings, for instance, Uh, Ben Franklin writes a very famous or composes a very famous image of rings that are each distinct, but they're linked together that forms a chain that connects them all. Um, Or, you know, the stars and stripes uh, on the The national flag become um, sort of a symbol of, oh, we have all of these separate components that are representing the union. But then you had other things like a harp uh, that has a bunch of different strings. But when they're all together, they can play sort of this unified melody. Um, or a lot of um, this candelabra with multiple arms that have different lights. And when you put them all together, you have a stronger light that can you know light up a whole room as opposed to just one candle. So a lot of these images were used both to represent the distinctive parts, but then also show that when you represent them all connected, it leads to something stronger or um, more uh, productive when you bring them all together.
1: And I think what's really interesting about that, too, is that, you know, those images, a lot of them are also used on the uh, Confederacy's uh, uh, money during the war and everything like that. And, you know, at the same time, the United States is a uh, Confederate money is also kind of. valued very low. It's, you know, still have the kind of term today of not worth a continental. Um, And so people are kind of being exposed to this at the same time that the very money that that is teaching them this lesson is just kind of worthless at that time.
0: And yeah, and this is sort of how much that this idea and understanding and sort of belief and whether federalism can work was very much an idea. And that's why, again, language and images and sort of you had to create and construct these ideas to help people recognize that this is That could work because no one at the time really knew if this structure was going to be viable or not.
1: Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people kind of forget about, you know, U.S. history, considering that we're kind of like still here to a certain extent today, is that a lot of people at the time just had no idea whether or not, you know, this was going to work. Um, when when, once uh, independence was declared, once the Articles of Confederation were ratified or created and then finally ratified. And then once the Constitution was created the entire time, it's just kind of up in the air.
0: Yeah, but there's ideas like, you know, we have to find some ways to create ways to help people believe that this is going to work, which is why, um, you know, I make this argument about, well, we needed to have ways of training people. This was a, an idea that doesn't make sense, right? Like, how can you have a lot of things that are going to be unified? And that you have to train people to find ways to read that in a way that's going to make some sense.
1: And, you know, one of the other things that you look at are almanacs. And so can you explain first, you know, for people who might not be familiar with with them, what an almanac is and then kind of like how important was it to Americans at this time period? And then how do you look at them and and study them?
0: So yeah, almanacs are great. And almanacs were all pervasive. They were sort of the uh, form of print culture that most people had access to. They were sort of the widest selling uh, print form in the early republic. Um, But they haven't been much studied because they're very hard to read. And the way almanacs work is they kind of work like a yearly calendar. They had monthly pages and the monthly pages would have all kinds of information about weather, about um, astrological signs, about um, key events and holidays, sometimes they'd commemorate historical events. Um, and they, they often had regional variations for, you know, when you should plant things and, um, you know, they'd also have, in addition to sort of the calendar pages, they'd have sort of supplemental kind of like a, a magazine. Um, there'd be recipes, there'd be, um, you know, suggestions for farming or for sowing or for, um, raising children, Uh, there'd be information about, you know, just sort of topical events. Uh, And so people often had these as sort of their, I don't know, just their means of keeping time. And people would, again, they were very widespread. Lots of people read and used them. And people often would write in them. Uh, They'd use them as sort of personal calendars where they record things that were happening. Um, And yeah, just a very, very useful document, but they're they're hard for us to read in the present because they're so specific to a particular year, to a particular patient, to a particular person, and they're composed of all these different kinds of pages and sections and not even consistently in sort of alphabetic print. A lot of the astrological signs are are difficult for us to read because we don't have a, as much knowledge about sort of the astrological uh, investments that people had at the time. And, uh, I go back to these because, again, I was intrigued. I was like, this is the source of print that most people are using. People are using these on a daily basis. It's extremely widespread. And they're very, again, regionally specific. So almanacs that were used in South Carolina are very different than almanacs that were used in, you know, Boston. Uh, And even within Boston, you had some some variations. Um, So they had some key features in common, but they tended to reflect what was going on in those particular locales. Um, And the way I read them is I take a look at, again, how they're teaching you to sort of recognize your own place and situating you in a very particular place. But most almanacs also had additional information that allowed you to situate yourself In relation to other communities elsewhere. So, for instance, they'd often include road tables that would allow you to sort of position your location in relation to and distances of other places that were located in the British colonies and then later the United States. Um, Sometimes the articles, the supplemental articles that they would have would clue you into things that were happening in other places. Um, Often the calendar pages would have headings that would say, oh, you know, this is where you are located and they give the the longitude and latitude and then they'd say, but you are located in these United States. So you had a frame to these highly localized texts that then Forced you to situate yourself into a larger nation. And I argue that that um, experience of reading sort of the local and then situating in relation to the national allowed almanacs to sort of help to train people to recognize that you could be locally distinctive, um, but also a part of something bigger.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that the concept of like reading just, you know, looking at, you know, something that is really kind of used to kind of, you know, predict the weather, you know, seasons and everything like that and, you know, help someone plant, you know, crops and everything like that. And kind of looking at that and saying, like, okay, how does this actually teach people kind of national values is something that I personally had never seen before.
0: And yeah, and it turns out that also um people that were excluded, right, from the the nation and weren't sort of counted as a as a part of that community also turned to the almanac. Um I spent some time looking at Benjamin Banneker, uh and his almanacs. He was an African American, free African American in in Maryland, and uh, he writes a very famous almanac. And he chooses to use the almanac form uh, to sort of demonstrate that, hey, you know, I can do these calculations. I can um, be a part of, you know, what other people are doing. And again, using that same mechanism of, I can recreate this local space and also position it in relation to a larger nation that includes African-Americans. So the Almanac, that sort of becomes a way in which it really opened up a space for thinking about differences being a part of a larger whole.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking of your discussion of Benjamin Banneker uh, while you were talking about Almanacs, because, you know, as you said, him using it as kind of a very purposeful uh, way of kind of claiming a spot within the nation and particularly to kind of you know what he does with it as well because he knows he doesn't just publish it and just kind of leave it there but he also sends a copy to Thomas Jefferson as a way of proving like hey you know this is what you say about you know African Americans uh, during this time period and everything like that but here I have done you know something that takes an incredible amount of intellect and kind of you know sort some sort of like scientific, and mathematical skills and everything like that. And so, as you said, it's a very purposeful move on its part.
0: Yeah. And something that I found is they sort of worked through different genres um, in the book. And without fail, um, I often found that people who had been excluded, um, women, African-Americans, Native Americans, would often then sort of go to those same literary forms around the same times that they were exceptionally popular and try to use them as a way to argue for a place sort of take that federal logic, you know, you include differences, and try to push the boundaries of that in some significant ways, not always successfully, but um, that there was that effort to sort of push that idea of federalism in these more racially inclusive and gender inclusive ways.
1: And one other thing that you talk about in the book are captivity narratives and you kind of inter- you introduce the uh idea of concurrent sentiments as you call them as a way that we should look at captivity narratives. And so for our reader or well Listeners and hopefully soon to be readers, can you explain what captivity narratives are? Like, why are they so important to the United States during this time period anyway? And what is your uh, concept of concurrent sentiments? How does that help us kind of uh, read these captivity narratives?
0: Sure, so captivity narratives are often considered one of the first truly American uh genres. Uh and they're they typically refer to accounts where um, you know, White Anglo people are taken captive, often by indigenous uh, communities held captive, and then they would come back and write narratives about their experiences as captives. There's also a whole other um, array of captivity narratives about um, people that were taken captive into Algiers. Uh, and again, usually white Anglo people taken captive into another culture. And they become important because you see people often in captivity narratives, um, the people who come back and tell about their captivity um, experience some kind of change where their perception of they had an initial perception of the these others who took them captive. And then after their captivity, um, they have often a different view. Some of our most famous captivity narratives like those of Mary Rowlandson. Uh, which I write about or um, the Algerine captive by Royal Tyler uh, which is about again Algerine captivity and why I think they're interesting is um, again not all of not all the people who are taken captive in all captivity narratives change as sort of a, a, a slight oversimplification but but um, In a lot of cases, the most interesting captivity narratives, there's some sort of change. And that's where I come up with this um, argument about concurrence. Um, So concurrence is this idea that um, concurrent sentiments that you can um, feel something different, but also be on the same general path. Things that are concurrent are sort of parallel and separate, uh, going in the same direction, but are, are separate from each other. So um, in some cases, for instance, in Mary Rowlandson's captivity narrative, she's taken captive uh, by these Native people that she considers, you know, barbarous and awful and, you know, the antithesis of her society. And as she goes along, she starts to identify and become a part uh, and starts to feel sympathy and starts to feel differently. And when she comes back, there's a very famous section where she talks about how she can't sleep at night because she feels differently now. And so she's back at home, but she's not the same. And it's idea that she still feels she can be back at home. She still feels she can be a part of that home community, but she has a really different Framework and understanding instead of feelings for being a part of that community, Uh, and the same thing happens in um, a novel like *The Algerine Captive*, where again, you know, you sort of have um, white Anglo-New Englander um, taken captive and um, learns to. Uh, appreciate in some regards respect uh, and understand uh, a culture that he once had sort of um, dismissed and denigrated as savage and brutal and, you know, barbarous. And he quite literally says when he comes back, he's like, I've now learned how to be a federal citizen. Uh, and my argument is that he can still identify, you know, with the nation, but he's got a really different set of ideas, uh, that still allows him to connect. Um, so that idea that you can feel differently than your neighbors, but still feel a part of that community, um, is echoing sort of that, that federalist dynamic.
1: Yeah, And for me, it was kind of interesting to read about, you know, how this is happening during that time period and how how you read these captivity narratives, because to me, it's a really interesting way of how to think about how these people who are captives are kind of reintegrated into the community to kind of, you know, incorporate the kind of differences that they've gone through, as you're pointing out, but still, you know, so that they're not sort of excluded completely because of, you know, being kidnapped by natives, for example.
0: Right. And this idea that you can return and be a part of your home community and be different from your neighbors uh, is something that I think was really important for, again, trying to imagine this nation where not everyone thinks, acts or believes the same way.
1: And one thing that you also look at is uh, satire and satire in magazines as well. Um, And so what do what do magazines look like during this time period? Because I imagine that for many of our listeners, a magazine in the 18th or early 19th century would be a far cry from what we're used to today.
0: Yeah. Magazines were sort of a new a new kind of invention. And they'd first sort of taken off uh, in England. And um, as the United States gets going, you know, they want to make sure that we're developing this um, literary culture that's on par with that of Europe. And the idea of the magazine was that it was always seen as a miscellany. A collection, and that was its purpose. You know, often we have magazines that have you know a particular theme or a particular focus. At this time, the focus was really meant to be variety, um, and so they'd have a lot of different articles. Um, they didn't necessarily have to have a unified theme or topic. Later on, some did, but in the early Republic, they were very much meant to be just a collection of different things. And the experience was that you know you were supposed to read them, reflect on them, and particularly reflect upon the variety and the differences that were there. So that emphasis on variety and difference, I think, is something that uh, we don't have as much in um, contemporary magazines.
1: Yeah, I think most people are definitely used to kind of picking up a magazine and knowing exactly what's going to be in there.
0: (laughs) And uh, people struggle, you know, the, the early American magazines, um, there were a few that, that that did well and took off, but again, they they didn't really last for them. This was very much a sort of short fleeting period toward the end of the 18th century uh, with American magazines. It sort of takes, you need sort of a, a wealthier and a sort of a, a larger sort of mass public, but in this early stage, you know, I argue that this became sort of a literary form that people were experimenting with as a way to see, you know, are there ways to learn how to read differences in these collaborative and and productive ways? And one of the primary um, types of writing that were published in magazines were these literary satires. Um, satire was a really hot. Focus for a lot of magazines. A lot of them just had a special section or would have a a lead feature that was focused on satire. And satire, I also argue, is a a form that sort of lends itself to sort of a federal sensibility. Because when you're dealing with satire, you're dealing with a text that's always two voiced. Um, It's never, there's sort of what it's saying on the literal level, and then there's sort of the implicit level or what it's poking fun at. So you have two voices that are both representing different things at the sort of the literal figurative level, but are ultimately supposed to lead you to a unified significance. Um, So I look at sort of three different uh, satires and sort of just try to explore how when you read them, um, it's very much training you to, Read in two levels, see how meaning can operate in different ways, all directed towards sort of a, a singular political message. And a lot of these satires themselves ended up being about federal unity and sort of political satire is very much um, a form for, for commenting on politics. So I examine how you know within the within the multiple space of the magazine, you have this literary form that's also sort of using strategies of plurality uh, to meditate on the federal structure
1: of the United States. And for me, kind of thinking about the way that satire is used in this kind of very literal way of, you know, as you said, you know, it's saying something, meaning something slightly different. That's kind of how it's always been. And then even to this day, I feel like that kind of holds true for the way that satire is used, um, kind of mirroring, you know, this 17th or this 18th and 19th century usage of usually talking about the way. America is seen, um, how Americans think of themselves and American politics, it's usually kind of along very similar lines.
0: Yeah. And often, um, even in the case, like uh, I look at this poem called McFingal, um, which even uh, in Congress, they started using McFingal as um a phrase that they use to sort of describe the politics that were happening in the Congress. So this role of uh, this sort of double voice dimension of satire and its close connection to politics um, is something, again, we, we still have today. And it becomes a really useful tool for sort of talking about the multiple voices that come up in the, the, the political structure where we have where we have all these different states and viewpoints represented in a single body.
1: And one of the other things that you look at in this book is westward expansion, which I found I found very interesting because, you know, my own knowledge of westward expansion and everything like that is that, you know, a a lot of people probably kind of, you know, are somewhat familiar with it as being, you know, somewhat inevitable, kind of a manifest destiny sort of way of thinking about it. Um, But at the time period, you know, people in, you know, what was largely just the eastern seaboard of the United States were very worried about westward expansion didn't really know what to do about it in some cases and so you look at how you know literature of the west is influenced by federalism and sort of like how these anxieties are playing out and so what does that look like
0: see people were really anxious about as the west sort of expanded rapidly and there were already concerns from the get-go that how big can a federal nation be before it starts to fall apart if it gets too big you're going to have too many differences and you know how do you keep those unified. And as you start bringing in, you know, these new landscapes that people hadn't seen before, um, you're starting to get more immigration from Europe. So you're having a less sort of uh, British-American kind of focus for the people living in the West. You're having greater interaction with um, Native nations. And then also you're dealing with other colonial spaces, French colonial spaces, Spanish colonial spaces. So the sheer amount of differences that the West was bringing into the United States freaked people out. And they said, how can we continue to remain unified? Can we account for all of these differences? Or are we becoming way too diverse? And so people living in the West, particularly in the Ohio region, which was where they're sort of an important literary center, um, they went back to the federal language of the early republic. And they said, look, we're going to reinvoke this. We are going to reassert it and say that, yes, we can still continue to operate and bring in all of these new differences under these federal principles. So I sort of look at this, uh, what happens in... Um, in Cincinnati in particular as this, I think I call it federalism redux, where they try to sort of reanimate that earlier language of the Federal Republic, but in a way that's going to be able to account for a much wider range of differences that includes the West.
1: And so your study is mostly from 1776 to 1830. And so what changes in 1830 that you're seeing that people are kind of this kind of Language of federalism is kind of dropping off. So what what's kind of different during that time period?
0: It all boils down to sort of the the scope of those differences that are coming in with the West. Uh, Racial and ethnic differences uh, really become the breaking point of federalism. People are okay um, to accept a union of differences within a fairly narrow range of what those differences are. And what we get in the West is, again, as you start to deal with um, non- Anglo, non sort of people with a a British, uh, American lineage that starts to cause problems, both, you know, with regard to, um, people associated with sort of Spanish, uh, colonial settlement, French colonial settlement. Then we also have the problem of, um, Native Americans. And the argument that, um, you know, we might have to include them as part of this federal nation, particularly as Native nations start pressing back on land claims uh, in the West and, you know, trying to negotiate treaties that are consistently either not negotiated or violated. Um, Those arguments about, well, we're a nation that is founded on differences and that can accept differences and sort of bring them into the union starts to draw some limits where including racial and ethnic differences, um, doesn't seem to work. And I look a lot at the work of, um, James Hall, uh, who was someone who was a strong proponent of these federal principles for the West, but he ended up, not being able to extend that logic. And you can trace this in a lot of his short stories um, where he draws the line and saying, you know, federalism works, but not to include um, Native Americans. And in the 1830s, you also start to see um, indigenous groups, the Cherokee Phoenix um, in Georgia, it's the first uh, Native American newspaper written in the Cherokee language, starts to use these arguments about federalism to argue back and say, you know, we have a way to be included in this, you know, diversified union. And then you have someone like David Walker, um, who writes a very famous work called The Appeal, where he also, much like Banneker, did years before. And he said, this is a nation that is founded on um, equality for all, on a recognition that differences can be a valuable conception. And they both try to argue back. To this logic and say by this logic, you have to include us. And, you know, as, as we very well know, um, Native people and uh, African Americans were not not included at this time and things get very divisive about shutting that down. So I argue that that that, that race and ethnicity sort of become the breaking point of federalism in the 1830s.
1: And so we have this great book in front of us, once again, reading these United States Federal Literacy in the Early Republic, 1776 to 1830. So we have this great book, and I encourage all of our listeners to become readers and pick it up. But – what can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on next?
0: So, yeah, as I was working on on the the West, um I got really intrigued by um accounts of, you know, Spanish colonial settlements and um what what records there were, what sorts of narratives there were. And again, uh, a lot of the work too that's been going on in uh, 19th century studies with looking at um Latino uh, writers uh, and things that were uh, printed in Spanish. Uh, And again, I live and work in the West in Utah. So my early America, I've been trying to figure out a way to sort of do that more locally. So I've become really interested in Spanish colonial narratives, particularly narratives of exploration and what effect those had in the United States. So I'm kind of working on a book history project that is looking at how narratives of Spanish exploration were translated and how they circulated in the United States in the 19th century as a way to sort of Think about um, how those narratives had an impact on how the nation was expanding and how we can, again, continue to try to account for different perspectives, um, different engagements and different forms of print culture that were highly influential, that have been somewhat overlooked uh, by a sort of Anglo or English language uh, centric focus on print culture in the early American West.
1: Well, that certainly sounds interesting. And when that work eventually comes out, I'm sure we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, Dr. Holt, thank you very much for coming on today.
0: Thank you so much. It's always fun to get a chance to talk about these things.